Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. Uh, we are going to be uh, looking at uh, Ephesians chapter 5 this evening. Um, as you're turning or scrolling there, I'd like to ask you a question to be thinking about uh, as we're going through uh, this passage this evening. And the question is, if someone, a brother or sister in Christ, were to come to you and ask for advice on how to overcome some sin or temptation that they're struggling with, what kind of advice would you give them? What kind of counsel would you give them? What would you have them do uh, to overcome that sin or that temptation in their life. So like I said, be thinking through that, maybe what you would say, um, where you would direct them to as we're going through uh, this passage. So uh, if you're willing and able, if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to read Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that you have revealed to us by your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that as we look into this passage this evening, Lord, that you would reveal to us in our hearts what you have for us, God. That this passage would speak to each and every one of us. That we would come away, God, more in love with you, and that we would hate our sin even more. God, we thank you for this time we dedicated to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so as we've been going through Ephesians, there have been some common themes that have been coming up um, as we've been going through this passage. Uh, so the common themes that you guys have maybe been hearing kind of repeated over and over as we've been going through Ephesians, if you've been with us for um, most of the messages. Unity, good, yeah. What else? As a teacher, I have to test my students to make sure they're listening, so that's why I'm doing this. <laughs> Anything else? Hmm? Walking, yeah, yeah, good. 
Yeah, some other ones that we've been going through, identity, uh, love, obedience, yeah. So identity has been one of the major themes of the book that we've, uh, in, in this book that we've been studying. Um, and so it, it kind of lists um, who we are in Christ, who we are in God. It says that we are saints. Uh, it says that we are chosen and predestined and adopted sons. That we are redeemed and forgiven. That we are members of the body of Christ. That we are God's workmanship. And here in chapter 5, verse 1, it says that we are beloved children of God. And because of this identity that we have in Christ, we are called to walk a certain way. And like Ben mentioned a few weeks ago, this idea of walking kind of means to act or to live or to interact with others in a way that points to what our identity is in. So we're called to walk in the good works that have been prepared for us. We're called to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We are called to not walk as the Gentiles do. In our passage today, we're called to walk in love. And later on in chapter 5, it says we are called to walk as children of light. So our identity is directly linked to how we are to live. But our actions don't just stem from our identity. Our actions also stem from our attitude or the things we believe about ourselves in light of our identity. And Marcus last week touched on this a little bit um, when he was talking about how the world defines themselves by their sin, right? I'm an alcoholic, or I'm a drug user, or I'm gay, or I'm transgender. They identify themselves with their sin. He said, as Christians, we are defined by our identity in Christ, and we struggle with sin. And you walk through many of the, a lot of the struggles that we may deal with, right? I'm a Christian who deals with anger. I'm a child of God who deals with gossip or bitterness or slander or whatever the struggle is. <clears throat> Our text before us this evening describes another set of sins that the Christians in Ephesus and the church today as well are confronted with. The sins of sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. Now it should come to no surprise that these are listed as things that Christians should avoid. You don't have to look very far or very hard in the Bible to see that these sins are explicitly forbidden. So why does Paul have to continually mention these sins? If they're so obviously wrong, then why does he even have to say anything about them at all? And I think it's important for us to take a step back <clears throat> and look at the culture that the Christians in Ephesus were living in in the time that Paul is writing this letter. 
So Ephesus was both a thriving cosmopolitan as well as a metropolitan city. It was a port city, which meant that ships and traders from all over the known world would come to Ephesus to buy and sell and trade goods. And there were a few different areas in Ephesus where the whole city would come together and gather for commerce or for political discourse or for other social events. <clears throat> One of those places is called, it's kind of like a marketplace um, in the middle of the town called the Agora. And this was essentially a, a town mall of sorts where most of life in Ephesus happened. It would kind of be the equivalent of having a outdoor Walmart, kind of a one-stop shopping, um, except for uh, the greeters didn't wear those trendy blue vests. They wore uh, priest's robes. So to enter this marketplace, you have to walk through this big archway or gateway. And as you walk through this archway on the walls inside of it were kind of these recessed little coves, and there would be statues to various Caesars. And at the feet of these statues was a pile of hot coals. And the priests would sit in front of these statues to, to various Caesars, and they would hand out pinches of incense as people came through this gateway into the Agora. And what you were supposed to do is you took this pinch of incense and you dropped it in the hot coals at the feet of the statue, and you would say, the luck of Caesar be with you. And the incense would fill this gateway and fill the whole agora with this wonderful scent. And then you would be able to go through and go about your business, whatever you're doing within the agora, shopping, buying, selling, trading, or just socializing. Now, this was a struggle for the Christians in Ephesus because this was tantamount to being Caesar. And so as a Christian, walking through that gateway, as a worshiper of Jesus, there is a conflict of interest. And so I'm sure oftentimes the Christians would try to sneak through without having to engage with the, with the priest there. Maybe they would wait for a big crowd that was going through and they could maybe sneak through and avoid eye contact and get in their way. But if they were somehow seen by the priest, and the priest noticed they didn't give the pinch of incense, then they would most likely chase that person down and say, hey, hey, you got to go back there, and you got to take the incense and drop it in the coals and you know, say the thing to worship Caesar, and then you can go on your way. And the Christian would no doubt say that, well, I don't worship Caesar, I worship Jesus, and so I can't do that. And then the priest might say, might call him out and you know, tell everybody around him, hey, this guy is not worshiping Caesar. He's a Jesus follower. And so then there could be this social stigma that would prevent him from being able to buy and sell and trade or even socialize within this area because he refuses to worship Caesar. But this wasn't the only area that caused difficulty for the Christians in Ephesus. There was also the temple to Artemis. 
This was another central hub for not only socialization, but also for worship. In Greek mythology, Artemis was the goddess of hunting, but Ephesus being a Greco-Roman city where there was Roman influence as well as Greek influence, Artemis became known as the goddess of fertility. And so the practices and activities that went on in the temple were centered around fertility. There were male and female prostitutes and all other kinds of activities that went on in there. And there would also be these large parties where the whole city would come together and worship and celebrate and have parades through the city. And so again, as Christians in Ephesus, they would not participate in those and they would be the only ones who wouldn't. So again, they would be cut off from society. The temple to Artemis also became a place where banking and money lending happened as well. So to avoid any form of immorality, they would not be able to go in there to exchange money or do whatever banking they were going to do. So these are just a few of the many struggles that the Christians in Ephesus faced, which I think helps to shed some light on why the passage warns against sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. Paul, having lived there for about three years, would understand these struggles that they were going through, and they would be in the forefront of his mind as he's writing to these Christians from his prison cell in Rome. And Paul even says to kind of help these uh, Christians in Ephesus guard against these temptations, he tells them to even go a step further and refrain from uh, sexual immorality or impurity. He tells them to avoid filthiness, foolish talk, or even crude joking. And this helps us to understand the way that sin works. Sin works in small incremental steps most of the time. Usually someone doesn't wake up and one day and say, you know what, I'm going to go murder somebody. Usually a husband or a wife doesn't wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm going to commit adultery today. It's little steps that lead to those big sins. And we see that clearly in uh, the Old Testament where Cain and Abel are both given a sacrifice to God. Abel's is accepted and Cain's is rejected. And Cain is angry about that. And God warns Cain and says, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Here, God's telling Cain that if he doesn't get a handle on his emotions, on his attitude, that sin will rule and control him, and he will end up doing something he regrets. And we all know that Cain ends up killing his brother Abel. Sin is like a seed that's planted by the devil within you. And when you water that seed with your thoughts and your attitudes, it starts to grow and branch out into other areas of your life. 
Let's take, for example, the sin of coveting. Let's say someone has something that you don't have and that you might want. Maybe it's a nice house or a really good paying job or 11 cute little puppies who need a home soon. <laughs> Fill in the blank, right? Uh, it starts by noticing that they have something that you don't. And that noticing starts to grow into a longing and into a desire. Let's say, hypothetically, your neighbor across the street pulls up into his driveway in a brand new convertible sports car. Now, I know in Grays Harbor, convertibles are not the most practical vehicles, but sports cars, so they don't need to be practical. But your attention is immediately drawn to this car, right? It's shiny, it's new, it's probably really loud, right? And you might even go out and take a look at it yourself and think, wow, this is a really cool car, and check out the engine and the interior. And you might be genuinely happy for your neighbor with this new car. And let's say you start imagining yourself driving in this car, and you have this kind of movie in your mind of you driving in a bright sunny day, the wind's in your hair, the sun is shining on your face, and you're cruising through the turns on Ocean Beach Road, driving to Seabrook, right? And you're gonna drive really slow through the neighborhood of Seabrook and wait to hear all the, wow, cool car, and I get all the looks, and, and you start to fantasize about this. And then you find yourself thinking about it constantly. And then you look at your car in your driveway, your 1999 Saturn LS with a leaky trunk and a transmission that doesn't always want to go in reverse. And you start having these thoughts that move from your head into your heart. And then maybe one day you see your neighbor outside while you're getting your newspaper and he's washing his car for the 20th time that day. And he says, hey, how's it going? And you say, yeah. And you walk off or maybe you just ignore him completely. So what is, what is going on in this situation? Is your neighbor a bad person for having a fancy sports car? No. Is this car somehow causing you to sin? No. The problem is us and our sinful hearts. So how does Paul instruct the Christians in Ephesus to overcome this temptation to sin? He knows the sacrifice that they've made. He knows the temptations they face. First, he reminds them of their identity. He says that they are saints. And that because they're saints, these sins should not even be named among them. And then he tells them what their attitude should be. He says, let there be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is at the root of victory over sin. It's an attitude of thanksgiving that will help us to not succumb to the temptation of sin. It's a habit of giving God thanks and acknowledging that everything we have down to the beating of our heart and the breath in our lungs is an undeserved grace 
and mercy and gift from God. Paul says that the way to avoid these sinful desires of sexual immorality, of impurity, of covetousness, is to have hearts of thanksgiving. Sexual immorality and satisfaction in God are mutually exclusive. Impurity and holiness are like oil and water. Covetousness and contentment, being thankful for what you have, cannot coexist. And there's a very clear example in the Old Testament of where thankfulness leads to the overcoming of sin and temptation. Joseph, after he was a slave in Egypt, became a uh, trusted um, figure in the house of Potiphar. He was given authority and great power in Potiphar's house. He was entrusted with everything that Potiphar had except for Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar's wife was attracted to Joseph, and so she pursued him in order to get him to sleep with her. And how does Joseph refuse her? He says, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So you see what Joseph is doing here. He's recounting all the blessings that he's been given by God. And his thankfulness in his heart gives him the ability to not sin against God. And we see the opposite play out as well. Thanklessness that leads to sin is brought up in Paul's letter to the Roman church. He writes in chapter 1, verses 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So according to Paul, everyone should be giving thanks to God for his general revelation and his common grace. And we should honor him as God. But because of their hard hearts and their egocentric attitudes, they choose sin over thanking God. So how should we, who have been saved by the blood of Jesus, how much more should we be thankful to God? Those of us who have been born into a living hope that cannot be taken away. 
Those of us who have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance in Christ. Those of us who have been adopted into the family of God, who are beloved children, we have no excuse for thanklessness. And if you're here tonight and you have not put your faith and your trust in Jesus, I would encourage you to think about why that is and what you have put your hope in. We've all, at one point in our lives, suppressed the truth of who God is and what he did for us. God is holy and just, and because of his holiness, he cannot tolerate sin. And the punishment of sin is separation from God and death. And so because our sin has separated us from God, God, through his grace and his mercy, sent his son Jesus into the world to live a perfect life without sin, although he was tempted in every way. He did not sin. And he went to the cross in complete humility and submission to God and died for the sins that we have all committed. And by his rising from the dead three days later, he conquered sin and death. And now those of us who have put our faith and our hope in Jesus can also have victory over sin and death. And we also know the consequences of sin that come from an ungrateful heart. Paul spells it out very plainly. He says, Surely everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, will not inherit the kingdom of God in Christ. If you allow ungratefulness or thanklessness to reign in your hearts, you'll be an easy target for the enemy. You might have temporary victory over sin, but the tree starts to rot from the roots. If ungratefulness continues to grow and fester, it will spread like cancer throughout your whole body. And like Marcus talked about last week, when we sin, we don't just sin against one person. We sin against the whole body of Christ and against God. We can always find a way to justify our actions or our attitudes. But sin is sin is sin. And we need to understand the severity of our sin as we are called to flee from it. So Kaleo, brothers and sisters, are you thankful? Husbands, are you thankful for your wives and all that they do for your family? Wives, are you thankful to your husbands, the work they do to provide for your family? Parents, are you thankful for your children, even in the midst of chaos of raising them? Single people, are you thankful for the time and freedom you have in your singleness? Employees, are you thankful for your job, no matter how stressful it is or how unappreciated you might feel in it? Children, are you thankful for your parents, even when they discipline you? 
We've all felt the sin of thanklessness in our hearts and lives and the consequences that come from it. And we would do well to encourage one another and remind one another of the blessings that we have received in Christ. There's another temptation that the Christians in Ephesus faced, and that was with a, a group of false Christians. Paul writes in verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes against the sons of disobedience. There was a group of Christians called the Nicolaitans. And they were more of kind of a Gnostic sect of Christianity. And they believed that you could live like a regular Ephesian during the week and do all the practices, the pinch of incense, go to the temple of Artemis and engage in all the immorality there. And then you could come to church on Sunday and worship. They had this belief that the body was bad and sinful and the spirit was all that really mattered. So you could do whatever you wanted with your body because it was just going to be discarded and die, but the spirit was the really important thing that would continue to live on. And so I'm sure this view sounded somewhat appealing to some of the Christians in Ephesus that were maybe dealing with this conflict of feeling like they were outcast. But we know from Revelation that they stood strong, even in the face of massive social and cultural pressure from without as well as from within. And we, too, are faced with similar pressures. Pressures to compromise on our beliefs. Pressure to feel or to be more tolerant and accepting of others' lifestyles. Pressure is to just go along with the lies that our culture promotes. But we are called to a higher standard. We're called to be imitators of God. We're called to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We're called to flee from temptation and pursue righteousness. We're told to count it all joy when we face trials of many kinds because the testing of our faith produces perseverance. We're called to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires. And when his desires are conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. So let us throw off all the snares of sin that entangle us. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. And let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the many mercies and blessings and gifts you have given us in Christ Jesus. 
God, please help us as we go throughout our day, throughout our week, to be mindful of your blessings. Help us to have hearts of thankfulness. Help us to remind each other of the blessings we have in you. God, I pray that we would abide in you, that we would get into your word, commune with you in prayer, and be reminded of the many blessings that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.